This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. The neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now here's your host, Toby Passman. All right, we have a special guest with us on the show today, Dr. Emily Rowe. Dr. Rowe graduated from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in 2004, and after a brief time in the field of internal medicine, she became frustrated with the Western approach to illness. She realized that she was being trained to treat the symptoms of disease and its end-stage complications while failing to address its root cause. Inspired to find a comprehensive and definitive way to heal her patients, she went back to school and completed her master's degree in Chinese medicine and acupuncture in 2009. Dr. Rose's practice melds Chinese herbal medicine and therapies with modern Western diagnostic evaluations, nutritional supplementation, dietary and lifestyle modifications. Uh, So Dr. Rose, super excited to have you with us on the show today. Thank you. Please just call me Emily, though. I, I thank you for having me, Toby. I really appreciate being invited to be a speaker on your podcast. Of course, of course. So tell me a little about kind of your your time, the brief time that you spent in internal medicine and just kind of what that process was of becoming a bit disillusioned with the Western approach to illness. Um, well, I was working at um, a hospital in New York City. Um, and uh, I, was, I was actually, when I quit my residency, I, I was working in the ICU. And um, the night I quit, I had actually worked all night and I signed seven death certificates the next morning. And um, I felt like I was treating the end stages of diseases. I didn't feel like I was helping people there was a lot of medical futility. And I also felt like um, uh, there was a severe fear of death without questioning quality of life. And, you know, I mean, the truth is every, every single one of us eventually is gonna die. And, and you know, to be able to die with dignity and um, not in a state of terror or shock and to be able to evaluate when is the right time to intervene and when is it. And um, I, I didn't see any of those things being addressed in internal medicine. Um, and you know, no doctor wants to hurt their patient at all. I, I think every doctor is well-intentioned, but um, internal medicine, uh, the way it's practiced in conventional medicine is very, um, you're just treating the symptoms. You're not really looking at etiology and root cause. Um, and, and I wasn't, I wasn't happy with that. At the same time, um, I, uh, I was having severe joint pain, um, fatigue. I mean, part of it was just residencies, staying up late or working early, all that. Um, at the same time, you know, you're relearning stuff that appeared briefly in medical school and really trying to integrate it into clinical care. So, so it was um, very physically taxing, um, but I ended up having um, severe insomnia, joint pain, all these different problems. Um, about 10 years later, I was diagnosed with autoimmune disease, but I'm sure it was going on then. And uh, out of desperation, I went to an acupuncturist to help with the insomnia because I wasn't intru- interested in taking, you know, Ambien and all the, uh, Um, medications for sleep. Um, And the acupuncture helped me more than anything I learned in medical school. So I I quit my residency and I went back to acupuncture school and I got a four-year master's degree um, and became an acupuncturist and a Chinese herbalist. And then for years, I just practiced acupuncture and Chinese herbalism. But um, like all forms of medicine, it's limited as well. And uh, once I learned about functional medicine, and looking at root causes of disease and etiology, um, I went back to, to study at the Institute for Functional Medicine, and they had one brief lecture on Lyme disease, and I read Richard Horowitz's book on um, why can't I get better, and um, I discovered that I was walking around with Lyme disease probably for about 20 years, 
Um, and so Chris and I went and studied with Richard Horowitz. He has a training program for physicians. And then, uh, and then we also learned about mold toxicity and um, we're in a mentorship program with Neil Nathan. So like little by little, I've put all these layers onto my practice. And then most recently in the past three years, I started studying um, shamanism and energetic medicine because um, so many of my clients have uh, uh, inflamed nervous systems where they're having neuropsychiatric symptoms. And um, I find that the, the acupuncture and shamanic medicine helps retrain like the limbic system overdrive uh, better than anything else. So, so I incorporate um, a bunch of different layers of stuff in, in my practice. Um, and I'll frequently do, you know, labs on somebody that look at Lyme or, you know, antibodies against the brain. And then when I treat, I'll do a vitamin IV with acupuncture, crystal formations around them at the same time. And I use a variety of Chinese herbs and supplements and everything really meshes quite well together. If you look at the ancient Chinese writings, um, you know, one, one of the most respected and revered textbooks in Chinese medicine is called the Yellow Emperor's Book of Internal Medicine. And um, in the Yellow Emperor, they say that most chronic degenerative diseases are caused by exterior pathogenic factors which never get resolved. And so these are things like, Epstein-Barr, which can become chronic. Um, it's, it's exterior pathogenic factors can be uh, viruses, bacteria, such as Borrelia, um, mold toxin. Um, so like none of this is new and the Chinese knew about it. They just have a very um, poetic and different language for it. Um, but, but a lot of the stuff still applies today. And uh, you know, they didn't, you know, people back then most of them didn't even live to be 40 years old. So the treatments were very focused on um, acute illness and how to resolve an exterior pathogenic factor such as COVID-19 or something like that. Um, but they do have uh, information in the textbooks about you know, how to um, resolve chronic exterior pathogenic factors. And so I've recently started studying um, Sinology, which is the study of ancient Chinese language and characters with um, this woman who's got a PhD in it. Her name is Sabina Vilms. And she runs a, um, a, a website that's called uh, Imperial Tutor. And it, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and so she kind of gives us a glimmer of what's going on in those ancient textbooks. And she works as a translator. But, um, but so that, that's kind of my basis of where I'm, I'm at. I, I got into this because I was sick and I couldn't find a doctor to help me. And so I kept going back to school and it's just added on layers and layers and layers. Now, when it comes to these chronic external pathogenic factors that you're talking about, what prevents the body from say being able to heal itself from these different conditions and then you know, what do you then need to do in terms of medicine to help the body heal itself? So I think there's a variety of factors. Um, you know, genetics is, is one thing I love looking at there. And, you know, I was just at the ILADS conference in Orlando, which is um, uh, their society that is aimed towards treating Lyme. And there's a ton of genetic factors. Some people will, you know, get a tick bite, and they'll get like a huge um, EM rash, you know, the, the bullseye rash surrounding like the tick bite and they'll have an immediate immune response and generate fevers and you know they're sick and they get, they're the ones that get to the doctor. They get treated right away. Hopefully the doctor is aware of Lyme and, and treats appropriately. Um, but other people, they don't really mount that immune response. And I think it has to do with a combination of things. I think I think part of it is genetics for sure. Um, you know, in Chinese medicine, we would call that your constitution. But in Chinese medicine, your constitution is not just your genetics, but it's also epigenetics, like what's being triggered because of the situation you're in right now. So, you know, um, when you're in, when I was a resident, for example, I was sleep deprived. I was living off Red Bull and power bars. I, I can't even imagine what my nutritional labs looked like back then. 
I mean, this, this was like 20 years ago. So we have access to a lot of boutique labs that, that weren't available then. Um, so, you know, I think nutritional status, the average American is probably deprived. I, I also like to look at toxic burden. You know, um, a lot of people have been exposed to toxins such as heavy metals, pesticides, that kind of stuff. Um, before I went to medical school, I, I worked in a laboratory and we did, um, I was getting my, my PhD and taking master's levels classes in what's called microbial bioremediation. And what we would do is we would take uh, toxic waste sites and clean them up using microbes. And so we would get these soil samples that were contaminated either with heavy metals or uranium. And we would um, uh, extract bacteria that were already present in the soil and look for bacteria that were already reducing the heavy metals or the toxic waste or whatever. And then we would grow them up in mass quantities and then put them back out in the environment to clean up the environment. And it, it sounds really cool from a day-to-day -day thing, but it's really tedious. And, you know, I, I worked with uranium daily in the lab for, for, year, for about three years. Um, and I mean, we, we didn't even consider the heavy metals toxic. We didn't handle it as carefully as the uranium. So, I, I mean, and part of this was because I was 20 years old, wasn't really aware. We followed OSHA pro protocols. I, I don't blame the lab or anything, but um, I don't think there was a, a deep enough understanding of how radiation affects the biological systems and stuff like that. But in regards to why people um, don't resolve uh, stuff, I, I think it's multifactorial. That's a long answer. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sure. Well, it sounds like it, it doesn't have a short solution. No, or it doesn't. Short... Right. And, you know, this is where you can get into like the genetics of detoxification. So, you know, I've got um, certain genes where my husband and I will both be exposed to mercury. He can get rid of it. I can't. So um, and then some people will it's and it's interesting with heavy metals. Um, there used to be a test on the market called the Clifford test, but it, um, the Clifford lab, they, they closed during COVID. And I think the gentleman that owned it, he was a dentist. He, he was, he was older and he, he retired, but they actually looked at immune reactions to metals. So um, you could just like, uh, you know how some people they'll, they'll wear earrings and get a rash on their ears or they'll wear a belt and get a rash from the belt. That's, that's often a nickel allergy. And uh, you can do blood testing to see IgE reactions to nickel. Um, well, imagine if you have nickel in your body and you have an immune reaction to nickel. So something's within your body and constantly causing an immunological reaction. And so just like you can have antibodies to uh, bacteria and viruses. You can also develop antibodies to metals. I suspect some people have antibodies to plastics and other toxins as well that we haven't even we haven't even become aware of. And I, I really strongly suspect um, diseases like fibromyalgia. Uh, I suspect what fibromyalgia is is an autoimmune disease of the connective tissue, and we just don't know what the antibodies are. Yeah. So in terms of something like fibromyalgia, yeah, like a Western medicine approach or diagnosis, if you like, was were to Google it, they, they don't list, you know, what specifically is actually causing it. They don't know. So it makes sense that one of these other yeah, theories. I, I used to get in trouble as a med student for asking etiology of those kind of diseases. <laughs> They're probably mad because I, I don't I think know the answer. it's important to think about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would assume they're, they're just getting mad because they don't actually know the answer and they don't want to appear stupid to their students. So, right. So, but, but, you know, um, for my fibromyalgia patients, um, and you know what's fascinating, Toby, is um, the fibromyalgia is diagnosed by point tenderness at specific points, and, and they're all acupuncture points, which is, is it's fascinating. So, there, there is overlap that goes on with a lot of this stuff. And, the way I practice, um, I try to hold multiple paradigms in my mind simultaneously. So I'll have a Chinese medicine diagnosis. I'll have the functional medicine diagnosis. I'll be thinking about the genetics of detoxification, but then I'll also look at energetics as well. 
uh, emotional trauma, those kind of patterns as well is, is, a, is a also part of a big part of what goes on. And yeah, so in, in terms of that, like if, you know, if you were to have a patient walk into your office and they're complaining about, you know, say insomnia and fatigue and pain and, you know, just, just a, a myriad of different symptoms, you know, and you're integrating all of these different approaches, uh, schools of thought, different therapies, like just, can you walk me through kind of what, how you would approach, you know, just beginning so with the patient? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, certain certain patients will just book for acupuncture, and if if they come in for acupuncture, I I just approach them from acupuncture, and then I'll ask, you know, hey, are you interested in you know testing for heavy metals? I suspect it might be this or that, and then you know some sometimes they'll convert over to functional medicine. Um, some people come in just for functional medicine. They're not interested in acupuncture. They're afraid of needles. And um, some people respond very poorly to acupuncture. And like, just like I was saying, like some people can have immune reactivity to metals. Uh, I suspect those people are probably the ones that respond really poorly to acupuncture. And, you know, I think there's, there can be physiological reasons for that. Um, but I, I try to read the patient and see what they're interested in. And I also believe strongly in options counseling because we're all unique individuals. And just because something worked for one person, it doesn't mean that it's going to work for another. Um, so, you know, I'll, I discuss a variety of treatment options with them and like, I let the patient choose. Have you ever heard of audiovisual entrainment before? Audiovisual entrainment or AVE is a technique that uses pulses of light and sound at specific frequencies to guide the brain into various brainwave patterns. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you may remember Dave Seaver's interview in which he discussed audiovisual entrainment in quite a lot of depth. Dave Seaver is one of the pioneers in the field of audiovisual entrainment, having published numerous papers and developed a variety of different audiovisual entrainment technologies. In a 2017 paper, he outlined eight unique effects of AVE on the brain or mind. Firstly, it adjusts brainwave activity. Second, it puts the brain into a dissociative state or meditative state. In a 2017 paper, Dave outlined eight distinguished effects of audiovisual entrainment on the brain. First effect is that it adjusts brainwave activity Second, it results in dissociation, producing a deep meditative state. Third effect is that it results in autonomic calming, effectively breaking the HPA, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Fourth, it increases cerebral blood flow, increases lactate and anaerobic ATP production. Fifth is that it balances neurotransmitters. Sixth, it modulates neuronal excitation and glial cells. Seventh, it increases heat shock proteins. And lastly, eighth, it activates specific cytokines, which reduce inflammation in the brain. Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro will be offering audiovisual entrainment services to clients interested in improving their cognitive performance in the Miami Fort Lauderdale area beginning in December of 2021. Please visit roscoeswetsuitneuro.com, hover over the neuromodulation tab, and click on audiovisual entrainment to find out more about this technology, and keep up to date to find out about booking these specific services. So in terms of when you like look at just kind of people's lifestyles, it's like obvious, you know, that you know, where obviously most people are eating pretty, pretty poor, you know, food, pro highly processed food, high in sugar, maybe not exercising enough, getting too little sleep. Like what, what do you see as some of the, the biggest assaults to our health kind of in our, in our Western world nowadays? Well, I mean, you named it sugar, sugar and processed foods. And I mean, if you look at sugar and the history of sugar too, it's, it's one of slavery. I mean, we, we brought slaves from Africa to work the sugarcane fields in Cuba and, and America. And 
And if you look at, I mean, if you've ever been around somebody coming off sugar, there is a withdrawal. And, and I think the energetics of sugar is enslavement. And I mean, you have a ton, if I have a ton of sugar, I immediately feel sleepy, cognitively impaired, brain fogged. And I mean, it's easy to induce slavery for somebody if they're doped up on that stuff. Um, and, and that's truly the energetics of sugar. Um, cutting that out of the diet can be extremely difficult for people. And there, there is like, there's a process of, of doing it. I, but once my patients come off it, they feel so much better. And then, and then they'll have like one cookie and they feel awful. Um, gluten is, is a, is a common, um, inflammatory thing as well. We do a lot of food allergy testing um, because I find it super helpful for clients, especially if they have multiple food allergies, because sometimes people will be trying to keep a food diary and they can't tell what it is. Um, I, one of my autoimmune diseases, I've, I've had multiple ones, was Crohn's. And I actually had a fistula and it, it was honestly, it was awful. Um, a fistula is a hole between your intestines and your skin that's not your anus. And so people will leak feces. Um, and I had a fistula for about three years. And um, I did food allergy testing and I had severe allergies to 19 foods. And I cut those foods out. And within two weeks, my fistula healed on its own. And, um, you know, I was told by, by other physicians that, you know, you need Remicade, there's no way you can ever fix this, this and that. And um, that process of cutting those 19 foods out, at first I was like, oh no, what do I eat? And there, there was like a definite deer in the headlights feeling for about a, a week or two. Um, but I was so sick, I didn't care, I was gonna do it. Um, and, you know, some people need a lot of handholding. I refer them to a nutritionist if, if they if they want that. Some people, it's it's very simple. It's it's like okay, you cut out gluten and dairy, and they're like fifty percent better. Um, so it's it's different for each individual. My case was severe because I was looking at a colostomy bag, um, so I was willing to try anything to avoid that. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean it. It's it, nutrition is key to it. Uh, now I basically eat a modified paleo diet, um, but um, grains are big triggers for me, but other people do fine with certain grains. So, you know, I find each individual is unique and you really have to find your way with it individually. And that, that's why I do like the food antibody testing. Um, both, and we test both IgG and IgE. Um, just the food sensitivity, sensitivities, you miss a lot of the true food allergies and a lot of people have both. Um, but Can you sort of break down the, the yeah, distinction between both, like both food allergies and then food antibodies? Or, yeah, IgE is um, what is a molecule that mediates uh, true food allergies. And true food allergies are quick reactions. So people who eat peanuts and then get hives or people who eat strawberries and their lips blow up or, or somebody like gets a bee sting and they get an anaphylactic reaction. Those are all true food allergies. And they're quickly, um, the antibodies happen quickly and they go away quickly. So, you know, they'll break out in hives the next day though the hives are gone or they take a Benadryl and it's better. So that's a true food allergies, that's an IgE reaction. But a lot of people have low level reactions where they don't feel hives, they don't feel their throat closing and they'll just get like itchy skin or they'll get like fatigued and stuff. And when we do um, food allergy testing, it'll show up as an IgE reaction. Now there's a second type of, of uh, food antibody and that's called a food sensitivity and that's an IgG reaction. An IgG is an antibody that will, the half-life will, is, is 21 to 29 days. So, so what that means is that in 21 to 29, let's say you eat a piece of cake and you have IgG reactions to the gluten in the cake. In 21 to 29 days, half of those antibodies are gone. 
So it's a low smoldering reaction. Um, and you know, for my Crohn's, I had both IgE and IgG antibody reactions. I find with inflammatory bowel, cleaning up the diet is, is extremely important. Otherwise, um, you've got to cut those, those food, re the, the reactive foods out. Um, so, but the, but the problem with the IgG is like people try to keep a food diary, but because the, um, the reaction is low and smoldering, you can't really tell because it could be something that you ate a week before. And then imagine if you have five of them, and if you have five of them in the same day, like everything will crescendo, but you'll be like, oh, but it can't be eggs because I ate eggs a week ago and I was fine. So that, that's where the importance of the, um, the antibody testing for foods come in. And I find it really has impact on neurocognition, um, the mental clarity that people feel once they cut reactive foods out of their diet is, is they're so happy. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's sad when eating becomes inflammatory. Um, we have certain clients where they're severely sick and we'll even do short courses of elemental diet. Um, and elemental diet is, is, uh, basically food that's it gives you all your amino acids, all your basic nutrients, essential fats, and it's easily broken down in the stomach. So it's quickly absorbed in the first part of the small intestine. So allows the rest of your GI tract to repair and heal itself. Um, you know, if, if you've ever seen somebody who's in the ICU who gets a, um, a feeding tube, that's what they're giving them is like an elemental diet. And, and there's there's one called Vivanix that they use in the hospital that tastes horrible. And then there's another one that kind of tastes like um, orange tapioca powder that's, uh, that's for people who are not intubated and sedated. Um, but even that uh, is coconut-based and some of my clients are allergic to coconut, to coconuts, a tree nut, so it's a common food allergen. But I find a short course of elemental diet for inflammatory bowel disease can be life-changing because it really just calms the, the gut inflammation down. And you know, there's a huge tie between your gut and your brain, all those neurotransmitters that get created there. Um, I don't recommend long courses of it unless somebody has this you know, SIBO or something like that. But, um, but short courses, uh, some of our patients really feel much better with a short reboot. And you mentioned just the, the increase in cognitive clarity from, from kind of cutting out some of those foods that might be kind of creating this sort of low grade inflammatory response in the nervous system was wondering what, you know, what other factors, you know, when someone comes into you and says, you know, I'm experiencing a lot of brain fog, I can't, you know, think clearly, my mental clarity is not what it used to be. What other factors might be at play besides, you know, the foods that they're eating? Well, I always think about um, insulin levels, um, you know, even um, your, your brain actually runs really well off ketones and fats. Um, and if people are eating high carb diets, um, sometimes that's a huge factor. So I always think about that. I think about heavy metals. I think about chronic infections that can cross the blood brain barrier and cause, you know, low grade brain encephalitis. Um, they had a big discussion this weekend when I was at the ILADS conference on multiple infections that can cause this type of encephalitis picture in, in children, there's a thing called pandas and, um, the classic picture was they would get catch a strep throat and then the kids would develop like severe uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms um, and like total behavioral shifts and stuff like that. Um, but there's other things than strep throat that can cause pandas and panda stands for like, I think it's pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric. Oh my gosh. Now I have to, I'd have to look it up. I'm sorry, but it's basically brain inflammation in, after an infection. And, and there's actually a really cool lab. Um, it's they're called molecular labs and they developed a, a test called the Cunningham panel that looks at antibodies against the brain that can be developed in these kinds of things, but it's multiple infections, including, um, Borrelia, Bartonella is a common trigger for people. Um, and, and 
often uh, they'll, they'll have a variety of stuff, but it doesn't just happen in children. It can happen in adults too. Um, I see it a lot uh, in Epstein-Barr, HHV6 and cytomegalovirus. And, um, you know, Chris and I, uh, we will we'll look at antibodies against viruses, but one of the problems with antibodies is, um, you know, like you might've gotten chickenpox when you're five years old and you, know, you break out in the initial rash and everything and you're itchy and you have a high fever and miserable and then it, then it goes away, right? Well, it doesn't really go away. It, it, your immune system maintains it in a latent state until maybe 60 years later, you're going th through cancer treatment and you're getting chemotherapy. And next thing you know, you break out in shingles, right? So it's the same virus. Well, certain viruses can, can reactivate um, and they never really leave our body. Epstein-Barr is, uh, and so, um, so herpes zoster is, is what we call shingles, um, but all the herpes viruses can cross the blood-brain barrier. And, you know, herpes one will cause like the sores on the lips. Herpes two traditionally is genitals, but we know you can get either one in either place. Human herpes type three is cytomegalovirus, which is actually a, primarily a lung infection. Epstein-Barr virus is human herpes type four, which is really like a mononucleosis picture. But you can have mono, um, you know, when you're in high school, severe fatigue for a month. And then, you know, 30 years later, you're going through a divorce, you're exhausted from the stress, maybe finances change, you're not eating well, not sleeping. Next thing you know, you get reactivation of Epstein-Barr. So, um, you know, you can look at antibody levels. If antibody levels are high, you can think, well, maybe this is a reactivation, but there's a really cool lab we use. They're called Infecto Labs, and they look at T-cell reactivity to determine if, uh, if an infection is active. And I find that's a super useful test for people who are brain fogged. Um, if we suspect any kind of tick-borne co-infection or um, something like that, I'll, I'll run Infecto Labs. Um, and Infecto Labs has like a viral panel. If you don't suspect anything tick-borne, you could just look at the viruses as well. I look at that when people come in when their chief um, thing is brain fog. Occasionally I'll look at some of these bizarre toxins. We don't get a lot of people who used to work in labs like me. We have a couple other clients who used to be scientists, particularly chemists. They get high toxic exposures just for their jobs. Um, I had one guy, he was working with a lot of toluene and there's some weird boutique labs where we can measure those kind of levels. But unless I have like a distinct occupational exposure for that, the labs are expensive. They're about 700 to $1,000. And unless I really strongly suspect it's gonna help drive my, you know, how, how I treat clinically, I, I don't really order it. Unless, unless the person's super interested. I mean, some people are like, oh, I have plenty of money. I wanna run every test. Okay, great. You wanna see, we can look. Um, but, but usually I, I look at nutrition, infections, gut health, and heavy metals. Th those, are, those are really the things. And then, um, and then I'll start to layer in, you know, things like brain tap. Um, are you familiar with brain tap? I don't believe so, no. It's this super cool device and uh, it, it's, it seems like such a gimmick, but it works amazingly. So it has like headphones that you put on and then it has like a visor that comes down like you're, like, like you're a jet pilot or something and it flat and you keep your eyes closed and it flashes lights at specific frequencies and it helps you enter different um, state. So they have like an alpha state for like, like creativity, a theta state for meditation and a delta one for sleep. And some people, you know, their brains forgotten how to go into these uh, deep sleep uh, experiences. And so I find the brain taps really helpful if somebody's got severe insomnia. Um, and it's, it's this really cool device and, and they combine hypnosis with neuro-linguistic programming and positive psychology, and they use biurnal beats. And I, I think it's, it's multiple technologies combined in one device. So uh, the way I see it, it's, um, it's training for your brain. Just like going to the gym is like training for your muscles. And the first time you go, you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? This and that. But after you've been going for a year, you can't imagine 
not exercising. Well, the, the brain tap is because I get a lot of people like if I tell them to go to go take a walk on the beach and meditate, they'll be like, but I can't, I can't stop thinking. Um, and the brain tap is training wheels for that. It's, it's a pretty cool device. That sounds kind of similar to a device that I use uh, classified under audiovisual entrainment that I use in my company. And yeah, a lot of that, that's similar where you got the visor, you're listening to, to tones coming through the headphones. So I'm cool. Yeah. yeah I'm a yeah. big fan of, yeah. 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 So when it, when it comes to, you know, talking about, you know, say gut health besides, um, besides nutrition, or I guess, I mean, in, in the regards to nutrition, um, besides cutting out foods that, you know, might be pro-inflammatory that people might be allergic to, you know, what are your thoughts on say, you know, prebiotics and probiotics fiber, you know, what are, what are all the other components that go oh, into I mean, gut health? Geez, there's so many. Um, well, you know, the, there's a couple things I think of in regards to gut health. First, I, I want to make sure the person doesn't have a parasite. So I do a lot of stool analysis and, you know, there's, there's certain things let that light up. Um, I mean, sometimes like, you know, when they do the DNA analysis, it'll be like, okay, you have clostridium difficile. It's like, okay, I, I have to get rid of that. So th the way I think about it is like, what are you missing? What do you need? Like nutrient deficiency deficiency. And then what's there that's not supposed to be there. So you give the person the stuff they're missing and you take away the stuff that's not supposed to be here, there. So the stuff that's not supposed to be there are like the foods that cause the allergies, any kind of parasites, any kind of like, you know, just processed junk too. I mean, like get that stuff out and then give people really good quality stuff that they can digest. Now, now in Chinese medicine, um, you know, they don't eat a lot of raw foods. They don't eat a lot of salads. I find that my really sick patients need to eat cooked foods because cook cooking is chemistry, you know, and it's much easier to digest foods that are cooked. Um, certain people who have a lot of what we call stomach heat in Chinese medicine will do well with raw foods diets for short periods of times. But I find that eventually they can be depleting, harder to absorb nutrients and stuff like that. Um, but, but I look at all of that stuff. Um, I, I do like prebiotics. I do like probiotics in the right patient. You know, if a patient, um, Chris and I also treat a lot of what's called SIBO, which stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And we also treat a lot of, um, fungal colonization in the GI tract as well. And, um, you know, when we find evidence of either of that, you have to uh, be careful because probiotics, uh, certain probiotics can make SIBO worse. Um, and certain people with mold toxicity and fungal colonization, um, you know, some of that healthier fermented foods that are really good for everyday people um, make your mold toxin patients worse. So, you know, um, kombucha tends to make mold toxin patients worse because you know it's made from a fungus and this kind of stuff so it it's really so individually based but but the way i look at it is uh what's missing what nutrient or what thing do you need that's not there and sometimes it's not a nutrient it's it's the parasympathetic stimulation like the the rule is rest to digest and you know that might be the missing component um you know, I had uh, one lady, she had a super stressful life. And at the end of the day, she would drink um, alcohol to decompress. And she, she started drinking too much alcohol. And so what, what she needed more than anything was a new ritual for relaxation before she sat down and had dinner. Um, and uh, so, you know, she made a, a new thing where she would take a walk with her husband and watch the sunset. And um, that was her new glass of wine. And, you know, I mean, alcohol, it, it was a huge factor in leaky gut as well. Um, and then, I mean, there's so, there's so much going on uh, with gut health. Um, is, was that helpful though? But I basically looked at what's missing and then what's there that's not supposed to be there, whether it's a parasite, a worm, um, inflammation, you know. Uh, processed foods, that kind of stuff. Okay. And, and when it comes to like clearing out some of those like parasites or infections, those kind of chronic infections that we've, we've talked about, you know, what, 
I guess, besides like nutritional therapy, or we touched on, you know, acupuncture, what are, what are some of the other, uh, you know, therapeutic approaches that you like to use in your clinic? So I'm a Chinese herbalist and, um, I use a lot of Chinese herbs and they're, they're, they're very rarely do you give one herb by itself. Um, in Chinese medicine, they're very interested in the relationships of herbs. And, and it's interesting when you construct a Chinese herbal formula, there's like a, a structure to it. And a certain herb will be the principal herb, which is like the key thing that you want to do in Chinese medicine. So it could be like clear damp heat from the intestines. And the diagnosis of damp heat is like foul smelling stools that are loose, um, tendency to... Uh, irritability. I mean, there's, there's a whole like criteria for the diagnosis of that particular pattern. And so you might choose a particular herb to clear heat in the intestines. So like a, a common one that we choose is Huang Qin and Huang Lian, um, which is uh, Coptus and uh, Huang Qin. Uh, they're, they're like the yellow herbs that have the berberine. Um, and then, uh, and then there's another yellow herb, Huang means yellow. So there's Huang Qin, Huang Lian, Huang Bai. And then there's another herb um, that's a gardenia fruit. And it's such an elegant formula. There's only four herbs, but it clears the damp pee from the intestines. It's been used for centuries for dysentery in Chinese medicine. The, na the name of the formula is Huang Lian Jadu Pian. But I'll use that um, if the patient meets the correct Chinese medicine diagnostic criteria. So this is, this is where the Chinese medicine um, uh, kind of overlaps, but not exactly. It's not like, okay, you have this, let me, let me, you have this biomedical, let me give you this herb all the time. So there, there's, it, it doesn't work quite like that. Now I do, um, so I, I do use the energetics of Chinese herbs. I've also studied, um, Stephen Buhner's books, and I studied with his partner, her name is Julie McIntyre, um, in regards to Lyme disease and herbs. And, you know, he takes a very interesting approach. He takes what's called a cytokine approach to herbs. So he looks at how herbs modulate the cytokines in the body, and he will prescribe according to that. Um, but what I'll do is I'll take some of the cytokine information and I'll layer on the Chinese medicine energetics. For example, certain herbs, while it might have the right cytokine profile for you, they might be too hot or too cold for you, depending on your particular constitution. So, so um, I find the herbs come in really well. And we find in our practice that, you know, certain times people are really sick and they, they need antibiotics, antifungals, pharmaceuticals. But when you give the pharmaceuticals with the Chinese herbs, the eradication of the parasite is much more successful um, from what I've seen just in, in my clinical practice. And uh, there are certain cases where I worry about drug herb interactions, but it's only certain, um, certain drugs. And in, in general, I find they work synergistically much better. Um, I remember one client years ago, he, um, he was immune compromised and he had a chronic Giardia infection and Giardia is a type of amoeba. And he had taken doses and doses and doses of conventional pharmaceuticals from, from his doctor who was well-intentioned trying to help him and, and nothing was working. The poor guy had chronic diarrhea and because he was immune compromised, he couldn't get rid of this infection. And uh, we layered in some Chinese herbs with uh, it, and he was able to actually eradicate the infection. And I mean, he had had Giardia for over eight years. So, um, you know, the kind of taxing strain on the body that that kind of chronic infection does. And um, it's interesting too, the, uh, the parasites will have different cycles. I think, I think um, that, that, you know, where, well, they're flare and then they'll kind of go into a quiescent stage and then they'll flare again. And uh, I find that a lot of these are, are on a lunar cycle. So if we have somebody where I'm sure they have an infection and we can't catch it, I'll, I'll actually um, draw blood on the full moon to like try and catch something like Lyme and stuff like that. Interesting. And 
I thought it was really interesting, like just what you mentioned with with Chinese herbs, where it's like these, you know, crafted kind of combinations with different ratios. Like, I mean, that's very contrary to, you know, when people think of like traditional supplements, where it's, you know, you're usually, you know, getting one thing, you know, kind of isolated, or, you know, it's, it's, that's an interesting kind of change in approach. Yeah. Oh, totally. Cause one, oh, I, and I got distracted. So, I, so the first herb will be the principal herb. The second herb will kind of support the action and mutually enhance. So certain herbs will mutually enhance each, each other. And then the, often the third set of herbs are envoys. So they'll direct it to certain parts of the body. And then the, the last set of herbs are often like harmonizers that make all the herbs in the formula get along. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, some of these elegant formulas that they're, they're like four herbs or, or six herbs or something like that. Um, but, but it's so different than here's your berberine. Um, it's, it's a very different energetic. Um, yeah. And this is where you get into things like, you know, if you, if you ever go to France and you, you talk to people who are in the wine industry, you know, there's the terroir of the wine. Um, so like certain regions, like the, the minerality of the soil has like a certain, will evoke a certain taste in the wine and like the weather that year, maybe it was good, maybe it was bad. The crop is better, the crop is worse. Same thing goes on with herbs, you know, the mineral content of the soil in certain parts of China, like this herb, in this part of China was known for this, but the same herb that was grown in Sichuan has different properties. And, and that has to do with, um, you know, soil health and, and, and the geography and the weather patterns, and it'll, it'll change year to year too. And this is where, um, you know, you can have problems with essential oils too, with the same thing is like the crop one year will be different from another. And, the, the biochemistry of the plant is is not going to be the same every year, and um, and it, and then when you think about essential oils, you you're using the you know in chemistry like dissolves like so you know a lot of the Chinese herbs were boiled in water, so you're getting the the water soluble parts of the plant. When you're dealing with essential oils, you're you're getting the fats from the plant. So so it's it's all and sometimes the essential oils will have very different properties than like the decoction or the tincture. And I, I think there's not enough awareness of the differences in the biochemistry of, of all that stuff. Got it. Got it. Well, Emily, we're coming up onto the end of the show. The last question I wanted to ask you, you know, when it when it comes to kind of looking towards the future of medicine and kind of as some of these therapies maybe move their way more so, or not just therapies, but kind of this approach of, you know, functional medicine, combining all of these different modalities uh, and treatments, you know, where, where, like, what are some of the most exciting avenues or like, where do you, where do you sort of see this sort of field going um, in the future? So for me, um, I see the best results clinically when people mix and match modalities that resonate with them. And often, you know, they're, they're mixing sound healing with vitamin IVs, with nutritional changes, with eradicating infection. And I think we need to develop a truly integrative medicine where, where doctors have awareness of like the psycho-spiritual aspects of disease. Um, you know, chronic infections, it's a type of entity possession. It's like something that's there that's not supposed to be there. And I even think sometimes there's energetics in the etheric field that need to be addressed. Um, and I think what really needs to happen is mutual respect among it all. Um, you know, respect for, for, I mean, Western conventional medicine has amazing diagnostics, you know, MRIs, CAT scans, they're, they're, they're fantastic things. Often the treatments are not good, but I think there's a place for it all. And I, what I would love to see develop is, is truly integrative medicine and just bringing all the healing modalities together. Awesome. Well, Emily, I really enjoyed our conversation today. If uh, listeners want to learn more about practice or, or your, uh, you just personally, where would you direct them to? 
Um, so we have a website. It's called um, it's www.miamibeachcwc.com, and that stands for Comprehensive Wellness Center. And um, yeah, there's like a short like about us page, and it, yeah, that's that's a, probably the best place to go. Awesome. And for the listeners who enjoyed the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. You can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other major streaming platforms. Go ahead and give us a five-star rating. We would really appreciate that. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or uh, requests for any specific guests on the show, go ahead and shoot me a DM at Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro on Instagram. Emily, I wanted to thank you again so much for coming on the show today and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you inviting me. Welcome to Toby's Takeaways, a segment where I break down some of the most important takeaways from the interview that you just listened to with Dr. Emily Rowe. First takeaway is that internal medicine and Western medicine in general treats the symptoms, not the etiology or root cause of disease. Dr. Rowe became very disillusioned during her time working at the ICU, as there was such a fear of death, but not much attention paid to the quality of life that functional medicine really tends to try to address. The second takeaway is that external pathogenic factors, such as Epstein-Barr or Lyme disease, that the body isn't able to heal itself often cause chronic health problems. Dr. Rowe has found that acupuncture and shamanic medicine can be very effective for these conditions as they calm the limbic system in the brain, which gets very overactivated in the cases of these diseases. And the last takeaway is that food sensitivities are different than true food allergies. IgE is a molecule that modulates true food allergies and their quick reactions. Think people who eat peanuts and get hives. Whereas food sensitivities are modulated by a different molecule called IgG, which is an antibody with a half-life of 21 to 29 days, meaning that it stays in your body for quite a while, creating chronic inflammation in the body if you're eating foods that you're sensitive to.